This message is brought to you by ABC Church in Ammonford, West Wales. For more information, please visit our website at www.abclife.org. I, I guess it might be uh, what I call a generational thing, but certain catchphrases mean different things to different people. I'm going to try it out, okay? How many of you remember the catchphrase, Oh, you're awful, but I like you. <laughs> All right, okay. <laughs> uh, who said it? Dick Emery, yeah, so you say some people don't know what you're talking about, so this is why I'm saying it's a generational thing, are you with me, okay? And that was back in the 60s, early 60s. Uh, what about this? They don't like it up, um. <laughs> what, no? <laughs> Lance Corporal Jones, okay? And more people, more people will remember, you know, that because they're repeating the series, you know, I don't think they repeat the Dick Emery's. What about you, dirty old man? Steptoe. Yeah, very good. Okay, but but still, it's reflecting a certain generation. You know, <laughs> what about lovely jubbly? Lovely Del Boy. Okay, again, more people know about Del Boy uh, than they do about Dick Emery. Uh, and uh, uh, kind of a more uh, contemporary one. You know, now we're in the two thousands. Is am I bothered? Catherine Tate. <laughs> 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 Catherine Tate, yeah, okay. Um, so it's, it's a catchphrase, and an image came to my mind once, okay, when I was studying a letter that an early church pioneer uh, and a church planter had written. This pioneer believed that he was part of God's plan, that communities of Christ followers like this one were formed. Uh, and that these communities would have an impact on society and would be expressions of what God's kingdom should look like on earth. Now, this pioneer had planted many of these communities, very often risking his own life to do so. After establishing these communities, he often had to flee for his own safety and leave them to their own devices. This pioneer was Paul. Uh, These communities of Christ followers we call churches, and the record of his adventures you can find in the New Testament. Okay? Now, his main method of... Uh, see, Paul liked to keep in touch with these uh, communities um, after he'd moved on because very often he had to flee. Um, but he wanted to learn how they were getting on. And his main method of doing this was by writing letters and getting reports from some trusted friends. Paul wrote many letters to these communities. Some were a joy to write, others a painful experience. It was while I was studying one of these letters for a mini-series in our Welsh, kind of monthly Welsh service, Darganwood, um, that a catchphrase from a programme broadcast in the mid-80s came to mind. And it was this, I love it when a plan comes together. Now you know, do you know where that comes from? The A-team, yeah. This catchphrase was used frequently by the team's cigar-chomping leader, Colonel John Hannibal Smith. He was played by an actor called George Peppard. Now, I'm going to create a bizarre image um, (laughs) to occupy a tiny space of your uh, imaginations this morning, right at the beginning here. If there were reclining armchairs and cigar-smoking back in Paul's day, okay, I could imagine Paul, halfway through writing one of his letters, leaning back in his chair, blowing out smoke from his cigar and saying, I love it when a plan comes together. Yeah? 
the, the, the church plant that uh, would have caused this reaction was the community of Christ followers that he'd left behind in Thessalonica. Based on the reports he was getting back from his trusted friends, Paul was excited to hear about a church that was functioning as it should to the extent that its reputation was spread over a geographical area the size of Greece. And you can read it in the first chapter of his first letter. He says this, And so you became a model to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Wow. He's saying, you've got a reputation. You have a reputation that sets you apart as a model church. And this warms my heart. He would have said, it makes me proud of you. But, but there were other times in Paul's life when he couldn't write such glowing words of commendation. On one occasion, he found himself writing to a church with a reputation that probably made him cringe and wanted to yell out, how has it come to this? What's gone wrong to create such a mess of what is meant to be a beautiful demonstration of God's kingdom? Now, let me read you a description um, um, that somebody wrote of, of what was going on in this church. Um, he, the, here we are. They, they were in the midst of incestuous affairs, uh, vicious lawsuits, divorce and separation, idol worship, overinflated egos, doctrinal infighting, jealousy and sexual promiscuity and getting drunk during communion. You know, so, so, you know what I mean? Just imagine Paul, if you like, sitting down. I can't imagine him leaning back in his <laughs> armchair pulling a cigarette, cigar out of his mouth and saying, I love it when a plan comes together because it wasn't coming together. So what was it about the Thessalonian church that gave it a glowing reference? What was this, reputi- what was this reputation that was causing such a stir in the land? Why were people talking about it over a wide geographical area? The clue, again, is in the first chapter. I'll read another part of the verse to you. It says, Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of a reception you gave us. And then it goes on to say this. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So this is why there was a stir stir in the land. Um, So firstly, I just want to mention this. They had a reputation of being a community of transformed lives. Yeah? Um, in the message version, it says something like this, you deserted the dead idols of your old life so you could embrace and serve God, the true God. Now, the term I like to use when discussing idols with anybody is God substitutes. And what had happened to many in Thessalonica was that they turned their backs on God substitutes with a small g, to walk the God path with the God with a capital G. They no longer served or worshipped or put their hope in substitutes, but the real thing. And in the Welsh series, I mean, it comes across very, very nicely. I mean, in one of the Welsh translations, it says, Troi bant o fig du iau, i wasanaeth diw go iawn. Yeah? And when this happens, society takes notice. You see, the Thessalonians, uh, the transformed lives in that church, they were the talk of the town. Street talk was about them. 
one time, th this is what happened in Armourville. Well, it probably still is, I hope, okay? But, you know, with, with your history, guys, I mean, in this town, the street talk at one time was all about Ivy and Watkins. Because Ivy and Watkins had left the dead false uh, God substitutes to walk God's way. It happened. And he was the talk of the town. He was the talk of the street. Probably talk of the pubs and the clubs, I don't know. In other words, as a community of... Sorry. Um, and so that, that can happen when you've got transformed lives. And that's what this community in Thessalonica were. were and that's why they had the reputation. Um, the other reputation they had was of being transformative. Okay? In other words, as a community of transformed lives, they were causing a marked change in wider circles. They were transforming their society. Uh, they were having an impact on the community at large. They were being transformative. Now, my objective this morning is to look in very general terms, because, you know, this, uh, when, I, when I did this in, in Darganwad, it was over four weeks, and I've tried to, since I'm back on Thursday, to condense this before we do one. Okay? So I, I normally try and keep what i got to say to half an hour, but it might creep over, okay? Because <laughs> it's, not, it's not easy to, to squash the four into one, okay? Uh, so I apologise for that. Um, so I, 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 there, I want to find out, are there any clues as to why this church was being commended so highly by Paul. And I believe that success leaves footprints or fingerprints. Okay? Do you know what I mean by that? What I mean is this. If you analyse, um, say, organisations or businesses or whatever that are succeeding in their field, whatever um, definition of success you want to use, uh, then more often than not, they have practices and habits in common. You know, they behave in similar ways. And the theory is, if you be, start behaving in similar ways, then you, you might become a little bit more successful. The same is true of failure. You know, you, you can spot a dozen companies that have failed, and you think, well, no wonder. Look, fingerprints, you can see, yeah? Um, interestingly, and I'm digressing slightly here, that, I mean, um, one of the... Oh, there's lots and lots of surveys done about what you'd call the elite athletes and the elite in their... Uh, in their work or uh, successful entrepreneurs or you, you name it, okay, you know, people have reached certain heights, okay, um, uh, w when they survey what's true about them all, and you're not going to like this, 80% plus of them are early risers, <laughs> early risers, five o'clock, six o'clock in the morning, they're up. and not only are they early risers, the first thing that they drink in the morning is water, and then they have what's known as a morning routine, isn't that strange? Okay, so you know there are fingerprints. You know, in, in, it doesn't mean that if you start getting up early, you're suddenly going to become successful. It all depends what you do with those extra hours that you've uh, uh, created in the morning. But it is a fact. Um, anyway, so come back here. Um, so um, let's note three fingerprints. I've already mentioned them once. Okay, that were highlighted by Paul, and you'll find this again in the first chapter, in the first few verses. Okay. He says, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our, God, before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. There are three ingredients of a model church, in my opinion. Okay? A church that would get the thumbs up from Paul that had these ingredients, faith, love, and hope. 
let's face it, it uh, it's the very ingredients Paul saw were missing in the other church that I just mentioned, okay, that he wrote about, uh, that was far from being a model church. Now, I'm going to pick on just one aspect of faith, love, and hope this morning so that we understand the importance of these ingredients, okay? So, firstly, faith. When I dealt with this in Darganvot at the beginning of the year, I spent some time demonstrating how words can lose their original meaning during translation. And also, ultimately, with what the word becomes associated with. Okay? Bear with me, okay? Um, And it happens with the word faith. Uh, So so this morning, I'm not going to go through all the examples that I gave in Darganvot. I'm just going to use a couple of quotes um, from the research that I did to try and highlight this point to you. And this is, what, this is the first one. Uh, somebody wrote, Unfortunately, there are no words in the English language that capture the full meaning of the original pistis and pistio. We are stuck, he says, with the often inadequate words, faith and believe. And then, um, in order to um, flesh this out a little, goes on to say, As used in the Bible, faith implies trust in and reliance on God or Christ, surrender of our wills to God or Christ, and conduct or behavior consistent with that surrender. Okay, so I'm not, ideally, I'd like to repeat these quotes, but you know, I, if you want them sent to you by email, I'm sure somebody can contact me and I can send them to you. Okay? But, so basically what we're saying is it's, it's lost something in translation, and, and then in the way it's associated, or we use the term uh, faith these days, there is a tendency nowadays to link the word faith with a set of statements to do with doctrinal <laughs> beliefs. Ticking boxes next to a statement of faith can become more important than practicing or acting in faith. Yeah. Now, in the days of the Thessalonian church, there were no boxes to, link, to, to, to tick alongside the statement of faith. Faith was acting on the words and promises of Jesus, obeying his commands and following his example. That's what faith was all about. The only statement of faith that they had is in three words. Jesus is Lord. That's the only statement of faith that they had. And by making that statement, they were taking a risk. By declaring Jesus as Lord, they were declaring that Caesar was not Lord. You know, that was scary in those days. Yeah? An alternative, somebody said that an alternative spelling of faith is R-I-S-K, risk. One of the ways faith was seen in action and accompanied with the inevitable risks that I mentioned is when Jesus is command which is recorded in John's account of his life, was obeyed by these early Christians. So this brings me on to the second fingerprint or footprint. It's called love. This is the command that the Thessalonians acted on, in, in faith on. Listen to this command. A new command I give you, he said, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Wow. And he says, do this, by, sorry, buy this, Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Whoa. The word for love that is used here, as most of us are aware of, um, is the word agape. Now, in Greek, there were a number of words for love. Now, agape was a very special word with, with kind of an, an ele- uh, which elevated the expression of love to a completely new level. Now, there are many ways to define agape love. And 
the one I prefer, as I believe it captures the spirit of the word really well, is this. Forgive me for quotes. Not, not, you should have had a PowerPoint this morning, but I haven't had time. You either were going to have a PowerPoint or a message. Now, some of you might have preferred to have a PowerPoint. <laughs> Okay, but if I'd have focused on a PowerPoint, you wouldn't have other message. But all right, so anyway, so the, the, some quote, yeah, another quote here. Yeah, okay, about agape. It's, it's it's a love that keeps on loving even when the loved one is unresponsive, unkind, unlovable, and unworthy. It is unconditional love. Agape desires only the good of the one loved. It is a consuming passion for the well-being. Of others, wow. Okay. Now I don't find it easy to express this love. I'm not sure anyone does, which is possibly why, at the beginning of this letter, uh, Paul refers to their labour of love because it, it's hard work. Yeah, not easy. It's easier for some than others. For me, it's not easy. Um, let me give you some context, first of all, to the conditions that the early Christians lived in back then in Thessalonica and in the first three centuries, really, of the early church. Uh, and I'm quoting again from um, a raft of stuff that I had. I've just picked a few. One guy was saying, when you look at the Roman world, you have to question whether half the people had any humanity. Going to the, going to the arena to enjoy watching people tortured and killed, he says, doesn't strike me as healthy. Right? He then goes on to say, the church was birthed into a world utterly opposed to Christian morality. Yeah, that was the early church. Now, we're not talking 21st century, you know, okay? We're talking 1st century. And then it was, it is, it was a society dominated, dominated, dominated by males. Men expressed their dominance by having sex, consensual or forced, with men, women, and even children. It's, it's not that bad today, is it really? It's worse back then, you know, okay? And it was into that kind of society, topped by the opposition that they were facing and the persecution that they were co uh, confronted with, that the early Christians expressed agape love. This love caught the attention of and was noticed by the society around them. I'm going to there's a, a raft of um, reports here now, because these early reports of the observations that people had, Romans and various historians back then, okay? These are some of the things that they were writing when they were looking at and noticing Christians behave. Um, at no other time in the history of Christianity did love so characterize the entire church as it did in the first three centuries. And Roman society took note. Tertullian reported that the Romans would explain See how they love one another. Justin Martin, uh, Martin, sorry, Martin, Justin Martin sketched Christian love in this way. He says, we who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else, now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another uh, race or country now. Because of Christ, we live together with such people and pray for our enemies. And then Clement says this, describing the person who has come to know God, he wrote, he impoverishes himself out of love so that he is certain he may never overlook a brother in need, especially if he knows he can bear poverty better than his brother. 
He likewise considers the pain of another as his own pain. And if he suffers any hardship because of having given out of his own poverty, he does not complain. And then there's this record, um, which is a fascinating record. Um, and it, this comes from the third century, but it was true of the way Christians behaved anyway in the first century. When a devastating plague swept across the ancient world in the third century, Christians were the only ones who cared for the sick, which they did at the risk of contracting the plague themselves. Meanwhile, pagans were throwing infected members of their own families into the streets, even before they died, in order to protect themselves from the disease. So what I've done there is just painted a picture of the love, the agape love that was expressed in the early church that people took notice of. Uh, in writing to a church, as I mentioned earlier, that he was probably least proud of, do you remember what ingredients he mentioned, what they needed above any other? The last verse of 1 Corinthians 13 says, and now these three remain, <laughs> faith, hope, and love. And he tops it off with, but the greatest of these is love, the agape love. I, I know it's going to add another four minutes possibly to the length of this message, but I'm going to read what I call a, a modern example of agape love to you. And, and if you remember nothing else from this morning, I hope you remember the name of Arthur Forbes. Okay? Walter pastored a small church in southern Indiana, and he said there was a man in his church that he didn't like. You wouldn't have liked him either. He was singularly unattractive. He was, a, he was hunchbacked. He had a disfigured face, a lower lip that hung out about an inch, and he smoked incessantly. And this old man never bathed, and he smelled terrible. And whenever or whoever he sat next to in church, he always had talked incessantly to, and never sat in the same place. And worse than that, he always came late. So nobody knew where he was going to sit. So every Sunday, Everybody waited for Arthur Forbes. <laughs> One Sunday, Arthur didn't show up. Walter wasn't upset. But in the middle of the week, the phone rang, and it was Arthur Forbes, and in a gruff voice said, Pastor, do you still make house calls? Because if you do, visit me. I'm sick. So Walter visited Arthur Forbes. He lived in a shack, a broken-down shack on the side of the hill. Junk all over the yard, a broken fri fridge on the front porch. He went, knocked the door. The gruff voice of Arthur Forbes invited him in. He stepped into the darkened room. The green winter shades were pulled all the way down. The old black and white, some of you don't even know what a black and white television is, do you? And especially the next phrase, okay? Um, the old black and white television set in the corner had the volume turned all the way up and the picture was flip-flopping. <laughs> Remember flip <laughs> Anyway. Um, and there was dirt and filth everywhere and a stench of urine in the air. And there were dishes with rotten food in and piles of old magazines and newspapers covered with dirt. It was smelly and musty and dark. And there in the middle of the room, sitting in this stuffed chair with most of the stuffing hanging out, illuminated only by the flickering television set, was old Arthur Forbes. Walter said, I've come to bring you Holy Communion and to pray with you. The old man said, forget the communion, just pray. So he prayed. And after that, Walter visited Arthur at least two or three times a week. Every time he visited, he did something, like cleaned up the place a little, mowed the grass, did the dishes, paid the bills. He did loving things. He did what Jesus would do if Jesus was in his place. 
One hot August day, he knocked on the door and a gruff voice invited him in. And when he stepped in, there was Arthur Forbes sitting in that chair, naked. Walter said it was the most repulsive sight I've seen in a long time. This bony man with his hunchback and his yellow-coloured skin sitting there nude. The old man said, I'm hot. I took off my clothes. And then he added, I want Holy Communion today. Walter said my hands trembled with anger as I gave him the bread and the wine. The next day when Walter stopped by, there was no answer to the door. And when he pushed open the door, there was Arthur Forbes' naked body lying on the floor. He had the stroke. Walter called the hospital and he called a friend. The friend came over. They got this dirty, filthy man up on his feet. Walter said, with a sponge and soapy water, I scrubbed his dirty body. I washed him in unspeakable places. And when I had cleansed him and dressed him and got him to the hospital, we sat there and we sat there. And I said, Walter, can I get you anything? And the old man said, yeah, I'll get you a glass of water. I'd like a glass of water. So Walter went to the nurse and said, he'd like a glass of water. And the nurse said, "Uh, he can't have any water. He hasn't been admitted yet. Walter said, admit him. I can't, said the nurse. The doctor's got to do that. It's a bit like over here, really. I don't know. Um, And they waited for 15 minutes before a doctor came, and they got him to the room, and they tucked him up in bed, and Walter uh, pressed a glass of water to his lips and said a prayer and kissed Arthur Forbes on the forehead and went home and sat in his darkened study. And then the phone rang. And the voice at the other end said, Arthur Forbes is dead. Walter said that when they told me that Arthur Forbes was dead, I started to cry. And my crying turned into wailing. I hadn't cried when my own father died. And I was crying. And I was wailing. And my wailing turned into screaming. And I cried and I screamed and I wailed. And I realised... I loved Arthur Forbes. I loved him. He had seduced me into loving him, not by anything he did for me, but by allowing me to give to him what Jesus would give if Jesus was in my place. That's agape love. No? Remember Arthur Forbes? I, I mentioned earlier there was a trio of ingredients that contributed to this church becoming a model church. The third is hope. Well, this is another word that's lost its original oomph and its power because of the way we use it. I find it easier to, to get the grips with, uh, with the word by giving an example of what it's not and considering the opposite of hope. Okay? Uh, the context uh, we use the word hope in is usually in statements like, I hope there's no rain tomorrow and the sun comes out. I, I, I hope Swansea managed to get at least another six points from their remaining games. Yeah? <laughs> it might need to be more than six. I don't know. I know it. Yeah, anyway. Um, and when you're looking at that fuel gauge, if it's gone into the red, you say, oh, I hope there's enough fuel to get home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Harrod thinks our car runs on water. My wife says, right? 
Um, she's got great faith in her fuel gauge. I, I, I don't share it. <laughs> it's unfounded. <laughs> she's even had to have a police escort to a, uh, uh, to, to a petrol station. Because, uh, and I've told her, listen, I mean, if you run out of petrol, don't phone me. You can phone anybody else in the church or your friends, but I'm not going. Okay. Anyway, I think, all right. <laughs> I've just introduced you to my wife. <laughs> if, uh, and, and some of you are sat there this morning, right? Um, thinking, I hope we isn't going to go on much longer. <laughs> yeah. so, the, what we're expressing in these examples is more along the lines of wishful thinking. Yeah. The, the hope the early Christians knew and were known for wasn't wishful thinking. Uh, what words are generally used um, as opposites of hope? Well, there's hopelessness, and there's despair and fear. The way the early Christians lived and the way they died caught the attention of society. They had hope even when everything around them seemed helpless, bleak and black. So what had happened to these ordinary folk, people like you and me, that they were such a positive bunch of people when everything around them was so negative? Come with, with me back to the Easter events that we've just been celebrating. You see, the death of Jesus had plunged his followers into deep despair and they'd fled in fear. It is believed that the Saturday after Good Friday, Saturday the day before the victory and the excitement of Easter Sunday was one of the blackest and bleakest in history. I've meditated more on a Saturday this year than ever before, thinking, what if I was one of those disciples? Okay? All my hopes and dreams was, was just quashed. That Saturday must have been black and bleak, despairing. Um, Easter Sunday, um, sorry, uh, but then comes Easter, Easter Sunday, and everything is different. Hope is restored. Fear disappears. The people of the resurrection are fearless people now of hope. Somebody wrote once, without Jesus, a hopeless end. With him, an endless hope. And that's, that's what happened that Easter Sunday morning. And this is the reason for their hope. The risen, victorious Jesus Christ. The hope expressed by the Thessalonians was more than wishful thinking and crossing of fingers. It had a firmer foundation than the weather forecasting of even Derek Brockway. Okay? It was a, con this is what C.S. Lewis says, a continual looking forward with hope to the eternal world is not the form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. Now this morning we've just simply skimmed the surface of faith, love and hope. Uh, as I mentioned, necessary ingredients really for a healthy church. So how can I best conclude this morning? to turn the wishful thinking that you've got, that I'm finishing quickly, right, into a real, a real hope, okay? Um, so, so, well, I heard a story recently of a young boy who turned to his mum and asked her, will you give me a pound if I was a good boy today? His mother turned round and looked at him and answered, listen, Bach, why can't you be good for nothing like your dad? <laughs> the question that bugs me is this is it possible for me to live a Christian life that's good for nothing furthermore is it possible for the church like the one I attend to end up being good for nothing 
sadly I have a clue that it is possible. All right. Um, I, I'll go so far as to suggest that both for individuals like Wynne Jones and the local church like AEC, uh, they could become good for nothing if faith that is risky is lacking, if love of the agape kind is missing, and they don't demonstrate resurrection hope, will become good for nothing. Now, I don't have the right to say these things without some justification from the Bible. Okay, so here are a few words that Jesus spoke in one of his messages. He said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? And then he says, it is no longer good for anything. In other words, good for nothing. <laughs> it's no longer good for anything other than to be trampled underfoot, basically. And then he goes on in the same uh, message to say, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light their lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see what? Your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So when Paul was writing to this group of Christians in Thessalonica and he says these words that I read earlier, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only locally, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we don't need to say anything about it. He was talking about those verses in action. When Paul recorded his observation on, on this motley bunch of Christ followers in Thessalonica, he wasn't describing people who were good for nothing, but people who were salt in society, whose light was shining, and they were like a town on a hill that couldn't be hidden. They were a living, breathing demonstration of a community whose good deeds were seen, whose light shone, bringing glory to the God they had turned to when they turned their backs on God's substitutes. Now, I'm reading a, a cracking little book at the moment, and it's called Surprise the World. Um, it's written by a guy called Michael Frost, and the subtitle is The Five Habits of Highly Missional People. Not a big book, easy to read. Um, and there's one quote from there uh, I'm going to read again, the last quote in the morning, apart from one scripture. He says this, okay, um, and because I'm taking it slightly out of context, you don't know what he's been saying before, but I think you'll get the point. This twofold approach literally transformed the Roman Empire, he said, okay? While evangelists and apologists, such as Peter and Paul, were proclaiming the gospel and defending its integrity in an era of polytheism and pagan superstition, hundreds of thousands of ordinary believers were infiltrating every part of society and living the kind of questionable lives that evoked curiosity about the Christian message. They surprised the empire with their unlikely lifestyle. These ordinary believers devoted themselves to sacrificial acts of kindness. We've already seen that. They loved their enemies and forgave their persecutors. They cared for the poor and fed the hungry. In the brutality of life and the Roman rule, they were the most stunningly different people anyone had ever seen. What I liked about this book when I first started reading it was that it was encouraging, and I like when people play on words, okay? It was encouraging me... I encourage you to live 
questionable lives. You know what I mean? When you first say that, you think, oh, <laughs> come on now. <laughs> but he's encouraging us to live questionable lives. And I'm ending with this quote from 1 Peter, okay? Um, because that's what the Bible is requiring of us as well. Because in 1 Peter, he writes, in your hearts, revere, respect, you know, uh, hold highly Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks him to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So I'm being challenged to live a questionable life. Okay? And I'm challenging you <laughs> to live questionable lives. And let's work on having lots of model churches in and around this area. Um, okay, that uh, aren't good for nothing. Thank you. This message was brought to you by ABC Church. For more information, please visit our website at www.abclife.org or search for us on Facebook or Twitter. You can also contact us by phone on 01269 596000.